Well, good evening, church. I am Alexander. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, And their text for this evening is going to be out of Luke's gospel in chapter 8. So if you'll turn with me to Luke's gospel, chapter 8. We will be in verse 16. And once you are there, I want to invite you to stand and join me for the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 8, verse 16. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but they put it on a lampstand so that those who enter may see its light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything now secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care then how you hear, For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. Then his mother and brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside, desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. The title for uh, our text this evening is Listen Close. Listen Close. And as we continue or rather resume our study in the Gospel of Luke, uh, we need to remind ourselves very quickly about the context of where we're in tonight, where we find ourselves. And uh, that'll be a rather uh, quick catch up because uh, the the parable that precedes this is actually one of the more famous or well-known parables uh, that Jesus uh, teaches to his disciples. Uh, it's the parable of the, of the soils uh, or the parable of the sower. And this parable is, is well known and it goes something like uh, sower goes ahead and scatters his seed uh, and he scatters to these various kinds of soils. There's four kinds of soils mentioned. One uh, soil is not really soil at all. Birds take the seed and, and rob the seed before it can take root. Uh, another soil is rocky soil where it can dig roots kind of and eventually the roots wither and die and the, the plant dies as well. Uh, the third soil is one in which uh, the, the seed is sowed with uh, thorns and thistles and, and weeds. And so as the seed grows up, the thorns, thistles, and weeds choke out the seed. And it's, uh, it doesn't actually survive uh, through to the harvest. Uh, and then the fourth kind of soil is the soil that uh, we're exhorted to be like, the one that we're exhorted uh, to, to model, is the soil that, that takes the seed, that hears the, the word of God, and then actually uh, produces fruit and, and holds onto that fruit until, until the harvest. That's the, the parable of the soils. And it's in, in this immediate context that Jesus then pivots and then, uh, and then says the words that uh, we just read and, and those events unfold um, subsequent to the, the parable of the soils. Now that context is really important because one of the things that, that comes to light here, uh, and this is out of verse 16 of Luke's gospel, is this common phrase that you might be familiar with out of other gospels, uh, if you are familiar with Matthew chapter five or uh, even later in Luke's gospel, uh, the idea of lighting a lamp and then the foolishness of covering that lamp. That imagery is actually drawn on in a couple of places in scripture. And so the reason we need to remind ourselves of the context in Luke first is because the context is going to determine how Jesus actually uses this, uh, this proverb, if you will, this wise saying, how he uses it and how he applies it to his disciples. 
So before we can really understand uh, these verses, we need to look and see how he's using the proverb in verse 16. Uh, and then we'll be able to unpack all of what's uh, being understood here and what he's really trying to hammer home uh, to those who are hearing his message. Uh, so to compare, I want you to keep your finger in uh, this text in Luke 8, and I want you to flip over with me to the more famous of the text in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew is the, the first of the uh, synoptic gospels. So it's right at the beginning of the New Testament. And Matthew chapter 5, we will be in verse 14. And these words might be familiar to you. It's a famous, uh, famous teaching of Jesus about salt and light, about the effect that we have on the world as we go out. And in context, I want to read verse 13, 14, 15, and 16, but we're really going to pay close attention to verse uh, 15, which is where the same phrase is repeated. This is in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You might see uh, in those verses that I just read, verse 15 is almost exactly the same as what is recorded here in Luke's gospel. Uh, but the context beforehand and the context or the interpretation that follows uh, seems rather different. In Luke's account, it seems that he's talking uh, about something totally unrelated to uh, letting our light shine in all the world. Luke says, uh, whatever is now hidden will at one day be made known. Seems like a strange kind of way to apply these verses. Uh, but before we uh, try to resolve this tension, I want us to look in one more place where it gets used yet another time and in a different way. And that's actually later in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 11. So if you'll turn there with me. And yes, Luke himself, the gospel writer, records the same events, or the same proverbial saying, two different times. Once, we read just a moment ago in Luke chapter 8. And now, uh, in Luke chapter 11, and we are going to be looking at verse 33 of Luke chapter 11. And he's going to say that same phrase one more time. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so those who enter may see its light. That same phrase we've read now two other times. Now listen to the application of these words. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light, but when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright. And when a lamp with its rays gives you light, or as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. So now we've laid out the three unique uses of this verse. There's one more recorded instance of this in the Gospels. It's actually in Mark, but the Mark account, Mark chapter 4, is a repetition of the use that we just read in Luke chapter 8. So I've given you the other two unique accounts where it seems that it's used and used uh, in a slightly different or in a slightly augmented way from what we've looked at uh, in our text tonight, Luke chapter 8. So how do we first understand what he's saying? And in understanding what he's saying, how can we then begin to apply his words to our lives 
as we exist now downstream of these, these words. So the first thing to, to, the first question that we have to ask is what is Jesus communicating when he uses this same proverbial saying in multiple different ways? I'm taking it for granted that, we're, that Jesus did not say this only one time and then the gospel writers distorted his saying and, and misappropriated his saying and we're just trying to hold on to some kind of tradition that each of them conflict with one another. I think that because Luke himself uses it in two different locations, we can be certain that this is not Luke being sloppy with his writing. Luke calls himself a careful historian, a careful investigator, and he's writing a persuasive letter to Theophilus. So he would not leave something like this in his gospel. And so we can, we can rest assured that if, if in Luke's gospel it's used in two different ways, then a, a strange way in Matthew that we didn't see in Luke is not something that should surprise us. We should rather work through or push through to try to understand how this verse is being used, how this statement is being used. And to understand uh, this statement, we have to understand this is not a, a parable. Uh, this is a, a proverbial statement, which means it's not a statement that has one intended meaning. It's more of an image or a, a common image that gets used and can be applied in multiple different situations. We've seen this uh, by just reading these accounts, but you can even think about sayings that we have like this uh, in the English language. Uh, we might say, uh, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't force it to drink. That's a proverbial saying that we have in, in English. And, and that proverbial saying can be used in multiple different contexts. I've, I worked as, a, as an educator when I was first in Indianapolis, and that statement was used often referring to teachers reflecting on their students, saying, I provide the material, uh, but they don't do the work, they don't study. You can lead a horse to water, but you cannot make the horse drink. Uh, that same statement can be used of a coach when he provides a player an opportunity to play in a game. And he can say, you know, I gave him the opportunity. He failed to seize the moment. You, could, you can lead a horse to water, uh, but you cannot force the horse to drink. And it's used in now two different contexts. And that, that same statement can be used uh, and it maintains an element of truth, an element of commonality, but it has multiple different kinds of application that it is capable of being used in. And that doesn't mean that the people who are using it misunderstand the statement. It, it means that uh, it's a proverbial statement. It has a character of repetition in multiple different kinds of environments. And so what is the, the core element, the core truth that's being communicated with the lamp uh, and covering it? And then we can understand how it gets used in, in the different contexts. So the, the core message of the lamp, and that's the, the statement that we saw re repeated every single time. Uh, it, I'll, I'll just read it one more time and then we'll, we'll, we'll ascertain that. So I'm just going to read out of the Luke account. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. That's how Luke records it. And so what are we to understand, right? Uh, if, if Luke is recording this, he's first talking about the lighting of a lamp. Uh, and this is not altogether different than how we would light lights in a room. He's saying no one would, would go light a lamp and then after lighting the lamp, cover it and snuff out the light that it produces. That is a foolish thing. It would be silly for me to walk into this room, flip on the light switch, and then go about covering all of the different lights that produce light. The whole reason I flipped on the light switch was to allow light to shine in the room to reveal different things. So it would be foolish for me to do one thing and then immediately reverse the thing that was done. It's a foolish endeavor. And in each account, you'll notice that, that Jesus is, is saying, it's a foolish thing to, to do this and, and see what else is foolish. And he says this in multiple different accounts. The first one in Matthew, the famous one, don't light a lamp and then cover it. Rather, let the light that's in you shine in all the world. It's a very natural thing that if you are a Christian, you have light within you to let it shine for all to see. 
It would be a rather strange thing for you to let your light be covered and that you would snuff out that light so that no one else can see or be a witness to the good works that you do. If you think it's foolish to light a lamp and cover it, it's more foolish to be a Christian and not let your good works shine forth for people to see them. That's it. That would be a strange thing. In, in Luke chapter 11, similarly, he says, uh, no one lights a lamp and then covers it, but rather they put it on a stand for all to see the light. And then he says, your eye is the lamp of your body. Let, 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 let the light shine in you. It would be strange if you have light inside of you to not actually let that light shine forth and purify you to reveal what's dark and hidden within you and actually allow that to inform your, your purity. Let the light shine in your own heart. Luke has a, an internal orientation of this idea. If you think it's foolish to light a lamp and cover it, it's more foolish to let light be present in you and not act on or allow the light to actually shine in your own heart either. Similarly, here in the text that we have in Luke chapter 8, don't light a lamp and then cover it. You think that's foolish. It's more foolish to think that what is currently hidden will remain hidden. It is more foolish to think that what is currently secret will remain secret. The light goes forth, the light reveals things. The light will reveal things ultimately. The light reveals and brings things to light and those things cannot be hidden, they cannot be covered. He's, he's saying you think it's foolish to cover it? It's more foolish to think that you will be able to keep something a secret that the light is able to bring forth then what is the light that he's talking about? Similarly to the parable of the sower in our context, he says the, the seed is the word of God. The seed lands in the soil, it plants, and then it, it either brings forth fruit or it doesn't. Similarly here, the light of the lamp is, is the good word of, of the gospel. It's God's message, Jesus' message in the earth. And he's saying no one after hearing the message, after having, having, after having that lamp be lit, no one hears that and then snuffs it out. That would be a foolish thing to do. And snuffing it out is like letting the light shine and reveal to you things that are present, things that were hidden and are now brought to light, and then seeking to go back and cover those things up and pretend like they don't exist, to pretend like they're not actual realities to be dealt with. Who might he be talking about? Well, the, the Pharisees come to mind as a group of people who, when Jesus teaches them about their, their blindness to the real understanding of the scriptures, to the real understanding of who he is. He, he shines light about who he is through miracles, through works, through his teaching. And the Pharisees see the light, they see what he reveals, and they go back and, and cover it up and they treat it like it has not revealed anything to them. They're the person who has a hearing of the gospel and they don't respond to it. Just as foolish as someone who uh, lights a lamp and then just as soon covers it, as soon as they see what the lamp has revealed to them. It's a foolish endeavor. And the application of how foolish it is, is, is brought forth more specifically by Luke when Jesus says these words, For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. The point is, there might be things that the gospel reveals to you and you only, but that thing that is hidden to you, that thing that is secret to you, that thing that is uh, a closely kept thing that you wouldn't share with other people or post on social media or, or just freely share around, the dark secrets, the skeletons in the closet, those things, those things that are hidden will not remain hidden forever. Those things will become manifest. Those things will be brought forth. They will be revealed. And similarly, any secrets that you think, eventually they will be made known. They will come forth. They will come to light. 
We retain the same imagery right now, uh, even in our vernacular, when we talk about an investigation that was launched and look what it brought to light. We say the same kind of thing here is recorded. Uh, this thing that you thought was secret will be brought to light. It will be revealed eventually. So don't bother seeing the lamp, allowing it to shine forth, allowing the light to reveal things to you, and then acting as though the light didn't reveal anything and covering it up and keeping that thing in the darkness because eventually that light wins out. Eventually that light will bring forth or will manifest these things. It will bring it ultimately to the forefront. Jesus could possibly be referring here to the final judgment where there's no one who's going to escape the gaze or the eyes of God, his judgment. Everything that is kept secret now will be brought to light in that day. Jesus in his earthly ministry is, is kind of operating in that same way. It's prophesied about him in the early chapters of Luke's gospel that he's, he's like the sunrise that, that brings forth light and, and he, will, he will divide hearts and he will show who people are and what they are really like. And he's teaching this about himself. He brings secrets to light. He shows people what their heart is like. And when they see what their heart is like, they have a choice. They have an option. They can respond by addressing what was brought forth or they can go back and cover those things up and pretend like they never heard it and it was never revealed. It's actually not altogether different from the warning in the previous parable about how the seed goes forth and it lands in different soils. So be careful, take close watch and make sure you're the soil that brings forth fruit, that produces fruit upon receiving the seed. He says it in verse 18, take care then how you hear. For the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. The language is, is so, so keen. Uh, it says, take care when you hear. A, a, a great way of expressing this is, listen closely. It's teaching him, it says, listen carefully. It says, watch how you hear. Watch how you listen. He wants the people who are hearing this message to in a tender kind of way, understand the warning that is at play. Don't light a lamp. Don't let the gospel go into your ear and then not actually hear the thing that is being communicated. How do you fall short of hearing? Well, you might say, I heard and I understood intellectually, but there's a kind of hearing that is, that is closer. There's a kind of hearing that is true. There's a kind of hearing that is genuine. And he's saying, watch that your hearing is genuine because if your hearing is genuine, what you think you have now, the, the entrustment of the gospel, more will be given to you. And if you think that you have the gospel, but your hearing is not genuine, the little bit that you think you have will one day be removed and taken away. It's an idea of, of wisdom. When I was a, a child, my grandmother would visit from South Africa from time to time. And she would sometimes want to sit down when I was very young and she'd want to tell me something very serious. And so I was, I was very young, so I didn't really understand. And I would be wanting to do lots of things, play games and things like that. And she would sit me down on her lap and she would say, Leister Alexander, listen. And she'd say it in a tender way, but she's trying to communicate authenticity. She's trying to say, this is important. I'm not just telling you to listen. I want you to listen. Listen carefully. And then she would go on to say something profound. And, you know, I was a little kid and I, I really wouldn't listen. I just kind of get off her lap and go and continue to play. She's trying to communicate something. She'd often tell me about the importance of faith, the importance of uh, having a walk with Jesus, things like this. That's when she would really save that phrase or when I was particularly misbehaved. She tried to communicate authentically the, the danger that I was in and, and her desire, her concern for me to really listen, really pay attention, 
so that I would heed the warning and, and wisely act upon the words that she was telling me. Similarly here, Jesus is saying to the people who are listening, listen, listen carefully. Don't just listen and hear the words, L listen to what I'm saying. Pay careful attention, listen close. And then this is the warning that he gives. The one who has, more will be given to him. And for the one who has not, even what he, what he thinks he has, what he thinks he possesses, that will be taken away from him. The one who seems to have something will lose it. The one who supposes that he has something, it will be removed from him. He's talking about the same thing as he was in the previous parable, about the person who has a seed that takes root, they bring forth fruit, and the, there's two kinds of seeds, both of them bringing forth fruit, but one of them, one of them's a corrupted kind of fruit. It is entwined with all kinds of weeds and, and, and things that will choke it out eventually. And he's saying there's a danger in having a little bit of knowledge, a little bit of understanding, a little bit of fruit, but not a real, genuine, true fruit. What you suppose you're bearing forth, what you suppose you have, will be taken away from you because it's not genuine, because it's not real. But the one who, who really has, who genuinely hears, who genuinely pays attention and responds appropriately, that person will be given more. They'll be given a harvest, an abundant harvest. So there's, there's a danger, there's a warning here, right? Listen closely because there's a kind of person who thinks he has something that he doesn't really have possession of. He might profess, but he doesn't possess Christ. He might say that he has it, but he doesn't really have it. And he's warned previously in his gospel about this. He says, not everyone who comes and says, Lord, Lord, is going to be accepted, but the one who does the will of the Father. It's not just the people who profess Christ, who express appropriate belief, who say they love Jesus. These are not all the same people who have genuine, true hearing. The true hearer has, a, has an authentic, a real, a genuine kind of listening. So then we can ask the question, well, what does it mean to genuinely hear, to genuinely listen? What is true understanding? Fortunately for us, Jesus uh, actually explains this with an object lesson. And that's why we have verse 19, 20, and 21 recorded. He's, he's going to further explain what it means to have him, to possess him. Verse 19, then his mother and brothers came to him, but they, they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and brothers, they are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. It's a strange statement. We might look at this and say, well, Jesus is very anti his own family. He doesn't even want to associate with them. So how do we understand what he's saying? Well, the first thing to keep in mind is Jesus does not say, I don't love my mothers and brothers. He's treating this moment as an opportunity to drive home a lesson. And that lesson is built on the premise that the family that he has is actually a genuine, true, and good kind of fellowship. It's a close intimacy. It's based on this because he says, my real mothers and my real brothers are those who hear the word of the Lord and do it. And that's being elevated above his native natural born family. He's not putting his family down. He's simply elevating the reality of obedience, the reality of faith above that. And so how are we to understand what he's saying here? Well, we know uh, elsewhere in the New Testament that there, there's the idea of Jesus having uh, family, that we can be part of his family, we can be adopted with him. 
That is taught elsewhere in scripture. And he's saying, you know, if you want to be part of my family, you really want to be part of my family, the way to have fellowship with me is to hear the word of God and to do it. That's how you know that you're part of my family. It's an object lesson. And so why would he emphasize so strongly the need to do what you hear? One of the ways we could, we could get this wrong is we could say, uh, because by doing it, you, you earn your, your place at the table. You earn your seat at the table. By, by hearing the gospel, by hearing about good works, by, by hearing about all the good things that we can engage in as Christians, we could do those things, and in doing so, we could earn an adoption place in the family of God. That would be to, to get it wrong. He's not saying, do these things, and then you will be my family. He's saying, my family is identified by the things that they do. But why, again, the stress on doing? For us, as, as Protestants, that's, that's something that we usually recoil against. We would say, no, 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 no doing at all. Just genuine faith, really sincere faith, that's what we need. But I think that's a, a distortion, a miss as well. Because how do we know that our faith is sincere or genuine? How do we know that we really have Christ? It's not because we've prayed a prayer at some point in the past, or we remember really believing at one point in time, or we, we remember having a really genuine high affection for God at some point, but you know that's a distant memory now, and I hope it was real back then. How can we really have assurance that we are with Christ, that we are in Him, that we are to be identified with Him? Well, it's a simple test. It's actually the test He's, he's taught us a couple of times so far in the Gospel. Pay attention to the fruit that you bear. Pay attention to the produce that comes out. Same thing as the previous parable. The, the soil that is good soil is the one that produces good fruit consistently till the harvest. Here he says, the one who hears the word of God and does it. That's my family. It is not as though doing these things, producing fruit, is something that earns us a place. But rather, if we are really united with Christ, we will engage in the journey of sanctification. And here, here's how that works. If we are believers in Christ, we have union with Christ, it, it, we don't get union with Christ by doing good things and then he takes us on and identifies us as a union with him. But rather, if we are by faith unified with Christ and we really are unified with him, it would be impossible for us to be unified with him, continue to live on this earth, and not just abundantly produce things that would be evidence of the fact that we are in union with him. You know, if you, if you are grafted into Christ and you start to share his blood supply, his heartbeat, it's going to show up in your physiology as well. It's going to show up in your spiritual life. It's going to be evident, not because this is now, oh, now I know that I'm grafted with Christ. This is just an ongoing testimony, an ongoing witness that is born in your life about the previous union that already happened. If it's a true union, you will, you will do the things that he says. But again, it, doing seems like such a strange emphasis. But if we apply that to any other context, doing is not such a strange emphasis. If I, if I was to say, uh, uh, I'm having a conversation with my wife and I'm saying, I'm listening to you. She's telling me something, I say, I listen, I'm listening to you. And then after, after the conversation's over, we, we go our separate ways. And I don't pay attention to anything that was just said. I don't apply any of what was just said. And, you know, I catch up with her, and we have the same conversation again a few days later, and she says, you know, you weren't listening to me. I could say, no, I was. I, I heard everything that you said. You know, I, I paid attention. I could even repeat back to you what you said. But 
what she's communicating is there's a kind of hearing that's just information gathering, just a relay of facts. And there's a kind of hearing that actually says, you know what, I'm not even going to hear it. I'm going to apply what I hear. I'm going to apply to my life the things that I have just learned. And that kind of hearing is an intimate kind of hearing. It's the kind of listening that Jesus says, do this. This is the kind of listening that's true. This is the kind of listening that I want from you as a disciple. The kind of listening that doesn't only just get information out of Scripture, doesn't just get information out of the Gospels, out of the teachings of the Apostles, but does those things, puts them into practice, lives them out, abides by them. Those are the things that tell us if we're listening in a real, authentic, genuine kind of way. Now, this idea is an idea of obedience that's repeated all over the place in Scripture. That if we grow in obedience to Christ, if we are, if we are growing in our, our active obedience towards Him, we're not saying perfect obedience, but our increasing obedience to His Word, it is a kind of confirmation to us, to our own souls, that we are really His, and we have been the whole time. Because what we're not saying is that by being obedient to him to a certain level of perfection that on the day of judgment our obedience stands. It's still his obedience the whole time. And we know this because the thief on the cross professes faith in Christ and dies immediately. He never has a chance to show fruit. He never has a chance to engage in that kind of obedience. But it's different with someone like the Apostle Paul, who after his conversion has a whole life to live. And his life post-conversion is marked not by perfection, but by an active, regular growth into obedience. If you are a Christian and you live for any span of time, that span of time should reflect evidence or change or growth in Christ. The danger, I think, of, of much of our theology today in the church, we try to lower the bar so much and we want to give people so much confidence in their faith. We would say things like, well, you, you can know if you really are Christ if you have at some point in the past believed enough. Or if you, if you really have faith now. Or if, if you feel it in your heart, then you can know that you are a Christian. And it really lowers the bar because what Scripture tells us is, yes, those things are not bad things, but there's a better test. And it's the test of sanctification, the growing in holiness. Now, we want to be careful because the sanctification is not, is not the earning of salvation. We cannot pay back the debt that we owe. It's an infinite debt that we owe to Christ. We cannot pay that back. But that doesn't mean we should disparage or pretend like it's not important to actually grow in grace. Much of the New Testament is an exhortation to the church to leave off its baby ways and grow into a mature faith, to put off the immature engaging in sin, the immature ways in which the church once was, and grow into a pattern of holiness, of obedience, of, of love, and again, not perfectly, but it's, it's the idea of growing in sanctification. We, we cannot save ourselves. We, we cannot earn salvation. But our growth, our, our sanctification journey, our growth into holiness is going to reflect actually being attached to and unified with Christ. These are not doctrines that we can separate and say, well, I'm in Christ, but there's no fruit in my life. There's nothing that shows up but I'm still confident that I'm saved. That is not a category in Scripture. Nowhere in the New Testament would you find that. In fact, uh, one person in, in the book of Acts receives the Holy Spirit, 
and then proceeds afterwards to try to manipulate the Holy Spirit. And he is warned by the apostles who prayed over him to be very careful and change his ways because he is in danger. He never really had the Holy Spirit. He's trying to manipulate God. He's not any different than he was beforehand. He just saw power and he wanted power. So we know that being a believer, being uh, in Christ, is a, is a marked change in life, a marked change in obedience. And so then we, we, we hear once again the words of Jesus where he says, listen carefully. A genuine listening, a genuine hearing, is one who does not hear and then covers and forgets, but it's one who hears and then applies this hearing to all aspects of their life. Whatever in their heart is hidden and the light brings forth, the light exposes, they don't go seeking to cover that thing back up. They're going to seek to address the problem that's been exposed. Well, then the question could be asked, how do we address the problem? Our sin is a problem, and if the gospel takes root in us, we're going to see all manner of sin. And if you continue to grow in holiness, you're going to see increasingly finer details of sin that you didn't pick up on earlier, but was there the whole time. And now you're becoming aware of it. The Holy Spirit is showing it to you, bringing it to light. So what are you going to do with all these things that are, are exposed, are brought forth as the light shines in your heart? What are you going to do with those things? Well, the inappropriate thing to do would be to save face, to, to cover it up, to put on a front. We're very good at this. We, we're actually experts at it. We've been trained from when we were little children uh, all the way up until uh, even as adults that it's not really what you're like. It's the kind of image you put forth. We put an emphasis on uh, college applications with like GPAs and cover letters and letters of recommendation. And, and all we're trying to do the whole time is, is have a reputation that builds and precedes us so we can get jobs, uh, so we can get friendships, so we can get uh, a staying power in this world. We're trying to save face. And in all those environments, we're taught, don't be your real self, be a professional self. You know, be, be a person who puts forth a kind of image. And the ones of us who are better at it, we, we run further up the chain. And sometimes that's just a reflection of discipline, but often it is just really the fruit of us being better or worse at saving face in front of other people. In, in Scripture, in our identity with Christ, we're, we're not to save face. We're not trying to pretend to be something that we're not. So then how do we do that as we, as we recognize that we're sinners, we recognize we're going to fall short of the standard, and we recognize that there's a kind of holiness that's demanded of us that exceeds most of the expectation that we would ever put on ourselves. If you read scripture enough, there are going to be things brought forth that you're in disobedience to. And when those things happen, you have, you have a choice. When the, when the word has brought this to light, you have a choice. You're going to snuff out the light or you're going to deal with the thing that was brought forth, brought to light. And this is the question of obedience, the ongoing obedience of the Christian in their walk. The way that we do this is by recognizing first and foremost that when the light has revealed it to us, that is not a bad thing. That is an opportunity, a gracious gift of God for us to actually deal with the sin that was shown. The sin that is revealed to us is not our chief identity. Scripture tells us all the time, our identity chiefly is as a believer in Christ. We are chiefly identified as part of his family. Sin is not our chief identity. So as a Christian, when you encounter sin, you don't go, oh, I guess this is my identity. It was the whole time. No, no, no. This is something that is existing in you not your chief identity, but you need to deal with it because if your chief identity really is Christ, you want to clean this thing up. You want to really be like Christ, the one who you're unified with. You want to grow in obedience to him. And so when you see sin that's not in line with his word, you're going to want to deal with that sin. So how do you deal with the sin? Well, first, you have to remember that Jesus already paid for sin. 
Some fundamental teaching of the New Testament that he, past tense, on the cross, had dealt with our sin by himself being perfectly obedient, himself giving us his obedience and taking on our disobedience, being crucified in our disobedience, cursed, bearing the full weight, the full punishment, so there's no outstanding debt for us. And if we are to be found in Christ, that is a primary source of confidence, that this sin that we're exposed to now that's being revealed to us is not a new kind of thing that needs to be re-crucified on Christ. He already dealt with it. He has foreknowledge. He dealt with it on the cross. But rather, this is something that we can now once again surrender to him, give over to him through prayer, through the disciplining of our bodies, through reminding ourselves of the word of God. The psalmist in Psalm 119 says he's hidden God's word in his heart so that he might not sin against God. He's regularly saturating himself with God's word so that he might be more and more obedient so he might not sin. But when sin occurs, we take it to Christ because he's already dealt with it. It's kind of like uh, finding uh, an outstanding debt that you owe but seeing that the expiration date's already gone, something you already paid. I don't know if you've ever done this, now that we have online billing, we could pay for things online, but sometimes companies still send you bills in the mail. So you might one day, you know, you've paid a bill online and then you, you get a bill in the mail as well, you know, maybe for, for power or something like that. You get it and you receive it and you say, oh, you know, I already paid this bill. It's a, it's a debt that's already been paid. I don't have to worry about it. It's here in front of me, I've discovered it, but I've already dealt with it. And I, say, I can just throw it away. It's kind of what it's like discovering sin in your life when you're a Christian. It's already been dealt with. It's already been paid past tense. So now you can go forth and this bill is not something that's outstanding on you anymore. So we shouldn't hide it. We shouldn't keep it in some safe place. We can just throw it away. We can actually legitimately deal with the, set, the sin debt that we have. We have that kind of assurance as Christians. And this, uh, this brings us kind of to the full circle teaching of Christ here, which is the importance of having a, a chief identity actually rooted in him. If it is true that he is our chief identity, a family relationship with him is the dominant identity in our life, then that is going to live itself out in, in all kinds of practical, wise ways. If he's our chief identity, that informs a lot of how we spend our time. It informs a lot of what relationships we do and do not invest in. As Christians, particularly Christians in the West who value our individuality and our comfort, we think of our identity with Christ not as a chief identity, but as maybe a dominant identity or one of several identities that we like to invest in. And so we, we treat it like that often. We don't really primarily associate with God's word and use that to inform our lives. We might not primarily associate with other Christians and, and draw encouragement from them. But, you know, if, 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 he is our, if he is our family, if we're in his family, we'll, we will live that out in expression in this world by being part of community, by being part of Christian fellowship. If that's the chief identity, and, and you, you might have grown up in a Christian home with godly parents, you can attest to the fact that the natural family is a close bond, but the natural family on top of the spiritual family is a closer yet still bond. It's, it's even more intimate. It's even more beneficial. And we know that our, our bond and our fellowship with other believers is, is rooted in our chief identity being in Christ. That we can have a fellowship with other people who share this identity, who are obedient to the word of God, more so than we can with people who are, who are not, who are outside that identity. That does not mean that we remove ourselves from the world and we don't associate with it, but it just means that our chief identity informs the bulk of where we spend our time, where we draw our energy, where we find encouragement. This is where the, the teaching of the New Testament is rooted for, it's, it says, you know, if you are a believer, don't yoke yourself to an unbeliever in marriage. 
Because while marriage is an intimate kind of human relationship, you don't want to yoke yourself to someone who you can't even share your chief identity with. That's what Paul's getting at. It's not that non-Christians are, are worse than. He's simply saying, you know, if this is really your chief identity, if this is the thing you're going to be dominating in your life, you don't want to yoke that to someone who's not going to be able to share that with you. That would be a foolish kind of thing. Instead, you should get that kind of intimacy with someone who can share that chief identity with you, who can, for a lifetime of a marriage relationship, grow with you in that chief identity, namely being one with Christ. The same encouragement of being with a local church. You want to have your chief identity expressed out in the context of fellowship, community, and you don't want that community primarily to be people you have other, other interests in common with. You know, the world has all kinds of interests that we can form community around. You can form community around people you uh, play sports with. You can form community around people you go hiking with. You can, people who enjoy, you know, the same interests as you. Maybe that's political or maybe that's uh, reading books. Uh, maybe that's uh, uh, watching a TV show, listening to certain kinds of music. You know, if you go to a concert, this is like a, a very uh, apt kind of thing where you, you go to the same concert, you've all bought the same ticket, you're going to see the same person, you all like them enough. You can kind of have some kind of camaraderie with those people. But you can't have the like, deeper kind of community that is, is offered to you with Christians. But these things are nevertheless attractive ways in which we can form community. And if we're not careful, our comfort might lead us to finding dominant community there and secondary community with other Christians as we might find time. The New Testament would encourage us, and, and here Jesus encourages us, that if we're really part of his family, we're going to want to spend our time there. We're going to want to really be identified with his family. So this all being said, uh, putting this all together, the text of, of Luke 8 here, He's, he's warning people that as, as the gospel goes forward, as, as they hear his message, that they pay attention to it, that they should listen with a kind of carefulness that doesn't just leave the message on a shelf somewhere and in church on Sunday or as a certain closed corner part of the life, but it's, they need to listen with a kind of way that actually applies that message to all aspects of their life. They need this message to, to eradicate anything that's hidden, knowing that that thing will eventually become revealed anyway, and they need to, to deal with things as they come across them. The message of the gospel is, is a revealing one. It shines light into places. And Jesus himself is exposing people here in his earthly ministry just by means of doing miracles and, and performing tasks. But he, he's doing that, and every time people are having an opportunity to respond regularly over and over again. And that's, that's really what's been happening as we've been reading through the Gospel of Luke. You know, as, as you continue to see who Jesus is, as, as Luke is presenting him to you, one of the things you're constantly being confronted with every single time you get a story, you get a parable, you see it interaction, you're always confronted with this question, who is Jesus? Is this message a true message? Is this message one that's believable? Is this message one that I'm going to pay attention to and respond to, or one I'm just going to put on the shelf and keep as a potentially intellectual moral system? That's the thing that happens, you know, even before uh, this in Luke chapter 8, where there's the sinful woman, and Jesus says, I forgive your sins. And then the Pharisees and everyone around is like, who is this man who forgives sins? That's the kind of thing we're always wrestling with in Luke's gospel. And it won't stop until the end of chapter 24 of Luke's gospel. This same question will persist. Listening, listening closely, who is Jesus? Is this message real? Is the gospel true? And if so, are you going to listen and respond as though it is true? to believe in faith, to grow in obedience? Or are you going to be the one who hears the message and simply covers it up and puts it away 
hoping that it will not bring to light, hoping that the secret can remain hidden, hoping that the sin that it brought forth can just be something that you continue to invest in. Those are the options presented here. And as he's teaching his disciples, that's really what's being put in front of them. And that brings us to kind of a final uh, reality, which is that among these people listening, there's a whole bunch of people, people who will eventually reject him casually, but there's, there's groups of people that kind of remain with him the whole time. Chief among them uh, would be the 11 and then Judas. Judas who, remember, the whole time the gospel is going on, he's already been taught to us as a disciple. He's, he's existing, he's walking it out, he's hearing all this teaching, he's seeing all these miracles. You know, Peter and the other apostles, they hear the same warning, and they might respond to it, maybe, maybe slowly, but they're starting to respond to it. Judas kind of exists this whole time, hearing all these same warnings, all these same teachings, all these same truths, never responds, not genuinely. And we're not told that uh, Judas was self-deceived and really thought he was converted. Judas is kind of a well-known himself to be, to be a fraud. He's actually laundering money, it turns out, at some point in time. And he is one who, who sits regularly under the teaching of the word and regularly does not respond. So if you want to know the dangerous warning here, the, the warning that's being levied out, is don't let that be you. Don't be the person who comes regularly to church, regularly reads your Bible, regularly exposes yourself to truth, and continually hardens your heart against that truth. There is a real damning kind of danger there. And it's the kind of danger that, that sears a conscience, that sears a heart, that eventually puts someone where they, they're no longer able to even hear the message. It just falls on deaf ears. And that's part of the warning. It's a somber warning, but it's a heartfelt warning, right? And imagine Jesus teaching this to his disciples and saying the same thing. Listen closely. And out in the crowd, he sees all of his disciples and also Judas right there. And it's a heartfelt, a genuine warning to them. And some respond and some don't. But that doesn't change the character of the message and that doesn't change the message to us. To listen closely. That's my exhortation to you. To listen carefully. Don't let this be something that just falls by the wayside a truth that enters in and then is slowly covered as soon as you leave this place and go on with your work week. This is something you need to pay careful attention to. Examine closely the text. See if Jesus is who he said he was. And if he is, if that's a truth that is brought forth and confirmed in your heart, don't cover it up because of some sin that is also competing for attention. Don't cover it up because of something it demands of you because those things do not go away. The light will go forth and will have its effect in judgment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. Lord, your word is something that searches us. It examines our hearts. And we pray right now that once again, as we, we put our hearts out before you, for you to speak into our lives, that you would bring to light whatever it is we are holding on to. Whether we are uh, believers in your name who, who have some sin that we are holding close, or would you give us grace to give that up? And if we are being confronted with your truth and we are not yet found in you, would you give us grace to be identified with you chiefly? That we would not once again quench the lamp that has been lit, 
but we would pay attention to its light as it goes forth? Or would your light continue to burn in our hearts, continue to reveal truth to us, show us what is hidden, show us what is uh, to be revealed? And by your grace, allow us to crucify it on the cross. Lord, we ask and we pray this all in your name. Amen.